Broadcasting live high atop the Sunset Strip, deep in the heart of Tinseltown, it's the Eden Rocks Radio Show. Your host, Son Edom. Joining us on the show is Lisa Jones, who is currently in Iraq doing ministry at a safe house, trying to help the Yazidi people who have been devastated by ISIS over the years. It's a powerful interview about the horrific struggles and the desperate lives that the Yazidi people are experiencing and how one group is trying to meet the needs of these people and offer some hope in what has become a hopeless situation. Lisa Jones joining us, and Lisa, you're uh, you're actually doing ministry in northern Iraq, a place that is uh, seen a lot of, of news lately, especially the last few years. Anything you can share with us about what you're doing over there? Yeah, yes. Um, so I, my primary work has been to um, serve in safe houses over the last Actually, it's been over four years now, since 2014, when ISIS invaded this region and and specifically attacked, uh, persecuted minorities and in Iraq, in the Kurdish region of Iraq, which is northern area. It's kind of where the Syrian, Turkey, and Iraq borders converge. And this has been my fifth assignment working here in the region with women in safe houses, women who were rescued from ISIS. Can you give us an idea of maybe what it's like uh, on a a day-by-day basis, if there is such a thing as a day-by-day basis, but what a typical day might be like at at the safe house? Yeah, you know, it's... um, We're indoors a lot, (laughs) so um, it can kind of get to you after a while but um, inside we just you know we typically have a slow morning and the the women are actually given permission to um, kind of dictate their schedules and go at their pace especially in the mornings it gives them you know thus pressure to conform to someone else's agenda and even just being able to have power over their own schedule is actually very countercultural here. So um, it's pretty quiet in the morning. Everyone's, you know, waking up at different times and getting, you know, a cup of coffee, having conversations over the table. Um, A lot of informal work is done in that um, part of what I do is help um, develop programming for staff, training for staff, and um, so a lot of times in the morning it's just the staff gathering together and checking in, um, and attending to any special needs of the day, and, um, and if there's any crisis that have come up, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are made really poorly here, so um, just recently, I mean, we've had to deal with everything from replacing ceilings to fires in the in the electrical you know panels and hotter heaters that go out and you know guard dogs that are attacked that need you know medical care things like that so the mornings are usually really kind of trying to figure out what is going to be moved to the top of the schedule afternoons are really times where the focus on the women are is is placed it's um it's anything from you know working on vocation and working on job skills it's working on english which is obviously a crucial um it's a crucial aspect of the work because the um here in this region if if someone can learn the english language it's very their skills are very marketable so they can you know, they can work in the country um, because it's rare that, you know, someone can actually do the interpreting, especially for a female. So English is really key for them. And so there's a lot of work during the day with the women that is more program-oriented. And then um, and the evenings, you know, because it's intense for about four or five hours in the middle of the afternoon, then everybody, you know, often the women are pretty exhausted. Engaging socially is... It's exhausting for them, you know, because they're having to really navigate through a lot of confusion and trauma and, you know, really deep-seated emotions from what they've suffered. And so, you know, getting them to just really focus for four or five hours in the middle of the day is, is key. 
and then we try to wind down and have more of an evening where there's reading, there's individual time, there's you know um, cooking. You know, sometimes there's little cooking adventures in the kitchen, making doma, things like that. You mentioned it's uh, you've been over there multiple times, so. And with uh, what you just described, the day-by-day events, it seems like there's definitely no routine or anything like that. Every day could be its new adventure. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you've been called over there. and But from a human, human perspective and what you've seen and what you've experienced over there, what keeps you going back? Because it doesn't seem like it's a safe place for people, especially Westerners, but for some reason it keeps drawing you back there. Why is that? Yeah, you know... Um I would just say, I was thinking even this morning before we talked, you know, sometimes you you walk by someone on the street and find yourself walking through Skid Row and just being overwhelmed with need. But there might be one person that causes you to stop and you just, you, you may stop what you're doing and empty your pockets, you know. You may see 20 GoFundMe pages on Facebook, and but one of them catches your heart and you give to it. It may be somebody you've never met in your life. And so I think for me that's, maybe it's a little simple in my explanation, but what what happened was the the Yusidi people captured my heart. And and it started with one one assignment, one deployment here to a safe house to run 10-day trauma debris programs. And it, it just became just a part of who I was and and so there's just such desperate need here and there really are very few people that are going to come and provide the kind of psychological and emotional support that the women need and you know I all I can say is that once my once these people grabbed my heart I I find myself making them a priority these days in my schedule and in my work assignments, I'm, you know, these, this, this work here has become a priority for me. Lisa Jones joining us from Northern Iraq. And, you know, in America here, we're a lot of, uh, we have a lot of self-centered things that we do. Not all of them are necessarily bad, but it definitely sounds like over there with you and what you're doing and the people over there, there really is a need to help others and to put the focus on others, like you said, um, with all going on, is is there hope for people over there for uh, a better life or to get out of uh, despair, things like that? What can what can be done to get give them hope? I guess. Yeah, uh, you know, um, there, you know, there's um, something we can all bring into a hopeless situation, right? Uh, when it comes to hope, actually, I was wrestling have rest, been wrestling with a book that I had been reading over the last few years called Embracing Hopelessness. And and I think the author was really trying to get the readers to wrap their brain around was um, what happens and, and when we walk into a hopeless situation and how, how well are we willing to navigate that. Because at the end of the day, yeah, we want everything to work out fine. We're actually hoping ourselves that a situation can be turned around. We're hoping that we, you know, as a, if you're a volunteer like I am, you know, you're, you're really hoping that when you go into a situation, you're going to walk away and that individual is going to have not just received a little hope, but that, that hope would wait a vision for a better tomorrow, right? So when we step into crisis, that's our goal is really to to inspire just enough hope so that the individuals themselves that are affected can begin to think about their tomorrows and have a dream for their future on their own. So we want to come in and say, I have a dream for your future. It's really, it's just giving them space so that they might dream again. Um, you know, one of the things that's difficult here is, is stumbling into the work, realizing that that very often that you know the women who are oppressed in society and you know who are who were already victims before this even happened 
they don't even dream much. They just don't have a big voice or a choice in their life. You know, what it's, it's been complicated, you know, but when it comes to being, you know, bringing hope, we want to alter the future and help others set their gaze on tomorrows. But the truth are, there's many people who cannot bear to think of tomorrow. So for the present day is more than they can bear. So it really truly is a hopeless situation. Um, I choose to show up here in this place and believe with the girls that life can be better. And sometimes better means that they're just not suffering alone that day. You see, so it's a small amount of hope that you're bringing. And I think we have to get content with not being able to provide all of the answers, which is why I like that reading that book was really challenging for me because I do want to fix things. I do want to see the, you know, it all kind of nice and tidy after, you know, I've invested my, my time and, and resources into a situation. I want to walk away and see it all fixed. And that's, you know, that's very complicated here. You know, we're looking for very small measurable goals um, in which to hold on to as we, you know, put forth our effort. You know, I think when it comes to why I'm here and and what brings me here is I, you know, I, I think there's a story to tell. Um, there's voices that deserve to be heard. And there's value and fellow man and fellow women that need to be acknowledged. And I've read that hope is the true currency of this generation. And I think for that, this is true here. That's actually a pretty powerful answer to the question. I think it was probably more than I was expecting, which uh, which I appreciate because it, it brings it a, a real a real sense of what you're what you're doing over there compared to kind of the the stuff that we hear on the news and 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 tv we get a, kind of a skewed perspective but um working at the safe house you know you've got women coming in and you've mentioned before you know even in in uh sharing and prepping for this interview that you know you're in an area that's been affected by isis an area that's been affected by human trafficking other personal persecution mentioned the fact that even just women being born in that uh in that in those communities are sometimes persecuted just based on their gender but uh so someone entering the safe house do they have a sense of relief or what's their feeling coming into it are they looking for to find that little bit of hope that you were just describing or is it just something that uh they've gotten to the point where they're just grasping at anything to get them out of the situation that they're in yeah you know, um, and that's what's so foreign to us. Most of these women aren't hoping for anything, you know. I mean, they're just basically shutting down and letting, letting whoever they belong to make decisions for their lives. You know, coming into the houses, into a place like this is different for each person. I've had them come right out of, you know, being, being released or being rescued within days come into the safe house and you know they're in shock I've had you know some that have been out for months and they have a little bit they've made some more adjustments unfortunately a lot of the adjustments are you know settling in even more severe PTSD but you know we place an emphasis on safety here that they feel safe and often that means they get to you know, to try to get them to determine for themselves what they want to do on a daily basis, how much they want to engage, um, if they're ready for any kind of therapeutic programming. Um, but you know, this is this is this is unusual for this for their culture because they don't have that kind of voice even at home. You know, there's fear of foods, there's fear of any male voices that can cause an alarm here in the safe house. If we have a repairman coming, you know, it's we have to really work with the women to help them understand that there's something broken and we're coming, they're coming in to fix this and that they'll be safe and we're not going to leave them alone. And so it's it's a lot of work in building rapport with the women. Obviously, you can't do any kind of therapeutic work with them if there's no rapport. And so that's a big challenge in and of them itself. But, you know, for the women, it, it varies. Some women have been so traumatized that um, they, they have flashbacks and they'll, they'll actually lose consciousness. They don't, they, you know, kind of go into a listless state where 
they're not with you anymore. They just drop to the floor and go unconscious. And some of them only cry when that happens. So their emotions are very deeply buried because they're, they've really never been valued. Their feelings, their desires, their wants, they've, they've never been exposed to an environment where they have a voice. So, you know, in trauma therapy, the most important thing is to give that individual back their voice and, and for them to begin to tell their story. That's when we see healing come. We see it happen all over, you know, all the time in, in sexual uh, women who have been exposed to sexual violence, the minute they start to tell their story and they tell someone, everything changes. They ba they're basically putting together the events and taking back control of their narrative. And so, but that's, you know, that's, that's hard enough in our own Western culture. And so here, it's incredibly difficult because the women just aren't accustomed to having a voice. We have to navigate around these cultural differences. And therapy looks very different than it would, you know, in the West. Lisa Jones joining us from northern Iraq, working at a safe house. And, and Lisa, when you, when you describe what these women go through, and you mentioned earlier in the interview, this is, I think, your fifth time now that you've been over there. Um, how do you not become involved and invested in these lives when you are dealing with such personal issues and such difficult issues and you're just there trying to give them just whatever little bit of comfort you can and, and help them any way you can uh, how can you not become involved and and then secondly too how do you keep from getting so depressed and so negative and keep moving forward and trying to help them yeah you know that's that's a really good question. Um, one of the one of the things that you have to remember is, you know, or I have to remember is, this isn't actually about me. <laughs> it involves my story because I'm here. But um, you know, one of the the worst things you can do in an environment like this is to make it about you. So you know, I have to lay down all of my expectations um, for any kind of recovery. For anyone, you see. So, because otherwise, I'll be I'll be pushing an agenda that's mine. And again, coming alongside these women, it's important to try to to try to lay down all of your expectations, um, so that they don't feel the pressure of trying to you know make some program a success or you know um, it's just very it's a very fragile environment. I am. Um, when I leave, I typically route myself um, on the way back to the states. I always route myself through, you know, another place of port where I'll, I'll, I don't know, hunker down for a few days and begin to make adjustments and process what I've witnessed and what I've experienced on each um, tour that I do here. So it's crucial that one I'm processing on a daily basis. Um, not bringing events yesterday into today. I have, as a Westerner, I have to lay down all my rights to have my freedoms. You know, I basically become uh, a prisoner in a house as well. You know, I don't have rights here that I would in, in the West, and I don't get to bring my Western mindset here. So it's it can be exhausting. It can be difficult. You're on your guard. You're constantly aware of the environment. At the same time, you're constantly aware of this need that exists in a country where a lot of people just as soon go about their day and pretend that it's not there. So it's you know it's 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 been one of the most challenging assignments I've ever had, and and yet um, I think. I think um, a lot of my training has brought me to the place where I can can give in the way that I do now, and I, you know, even though I never knew that this was everything I'd been learning and, and doing and experiencing in my life was building up to this. You've been there, you know. You mentioned 2014 through uh, now, I guess it's 2019. Five years. How much has mm -hmm. changed in those five years? Has it been good change, bad change, different change? 
Yeah, there there has been change. You know, there has been change, and you know, it's it's kind of like I don't know. I I think I would compare it to um, if you are in an ongoing battle with a family member in addiction. Let's just say that's a situation that you're facing, and when you first begin to discover that person is, you know, using, there's a kind of a crisis within the family and everybody, everybody shuffles to, you know, address it and all these, you know, changes are made and, and, and decisions are being made and, and all of these efforts are being um, carried out in, in which to intervene and to stop this, you know, crisis. And then nothing happens and five years later, you know, often people are like, yeah, that's part of how it is. It's, you know, they've settled into this lifestyle now of that one individual and how it's affected the family. So it's, it's similar to that. You know, there was a crisis with ISIS. Um, There's a global focus on this region and all, hand, all eyes and ears and, you know, we're on this spot. But now people have shifted attention to Syria, rightly so, because that's where ISIS has got a stronghold right now. And so, but what happens now here is the aftermath. So the thing that's changed the most is, um, again, I think watching over the period of years that I've been coming here is watching hope slip away from these people, this Yazidi people group that now have no home. For the first time in their history, they have no city of their own. It's been destroyed by ISIS. They can't live there. There's a few living in bombed out buildings, but for the most part, they've, they're displaced. They live in very, very, you know, flimsy tents that now are four, four and five years old. And so they're, they're literally having to reestablish themselves in the middle of the desert where there's no work for them. So they can't go and work in the cities because they're, they're a persecuted minority. They actually can't get jobs. So if you can imagine an entire city in America being attacked, being displaced in the desert with no resources for five years, what's changing, I think, is, is hope is continuously being taken away from them. They just don't see a way out for their future. It's it's heartbreaking, to say the least. Well, one of the one of the things that you mentioned earlier, which I would think might bring some hope, is you talked about uh, teaching English to to people, and so through that education, I know also in previous conversations we've talked about skills like macrame, for example, where people can learn this skill. Now they're starting to kind of create for themselves a job. They're learning English, uh, things like that. Is that one way that you can try to instill a little bit of hope with, into uh, these hopeless people by giving them these uh, resources by which they can then go out and maybe earn an income and, and help their situation? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the girls here, her family was killed by ISIS, and so she's really on her own. And once she arrived, she was struggling health-wise and diagnosed with a tumor on her brain. She's currently undergoing chemotherapy here. And so um, one of the things that you know, I brought in my suitcases loaded down with some macrame cord and, um, you know, uh, uh, as well as, you know, supplies to make earrings and, you know, a lot of other things that they could, could make and we could teach. And so, uh, but she really, she really was interested in the macrame and it's not something you see a lot here at all. Actually, you don't see it anywhere. And what, what she's found is um, she likes to do the hangings, and she, she, earned, she earned her own money to get an MRI. She's, you know, has money that she's saving right now that she's been earning, selling her macrame, her macrame hangings. And 
you know, it's to help her buy a passport or get her passport so that she can resettle. And so, you know, she's in the midst of carrying this, you know, this burden of, of disease and sickness, she's still hopeful. Um, you know, it's hard here because you can't find supplies. And so, you know, we're trying to see if we can find them in Turkey and have them brought in to the bazaars here so that actually she can begin to teach this kind of craft to the other kids that are in the village. So we're near a village that has, um, that is, is comprised of displaced people. So uh, right out, you know, kind of down the hill from us is a whole village of um, displaced city people. And so also work within the community bringing food and any kind of, any kind of crafts that we're bringing here, we try to teach to the others as well. It's unbelievable that you you mentioned this gal and she's making money to earn so she can get an MRI. And we here in the States, you know, we have uh, young people going and getting jobs so they can get car insurance, so they can buy the latest, you know, video game system, things like that. And so when you mention somebody working for a, a young gal working to get an MRI and, and medical and, and um, passports and things like that, I mean, that really sinks in and that really brings it home just to how much is going on over there that is completely different than what we have going on in our society here. When ISIS came, there was a surge of, of humanitarian workers that came into this region. They've pulled back, and it's rare to find them now. Um, it's very hard to function here in this, with the way things are run here as a nonprofit or an NGO. It's um, quite complicated. And so a lot of people have pulled out. So in our house, we bring a little girl in from the community. She's 14 years old. And she was taught English. So we gave her a platform where she could continue to work on her English. And I've been since working with her in writing and you know, learning to spell, not just learning to say the words, but now she's learning you know, comprehension and, and, and the language, but also how to write. And, and how to spell. So, but she's our, she's our interpreter. And so we hire her every week and she's the sole breadwinner of her family right now because there are no jobs for them. So I can't emphasize this enough. So you have hundreds of thousands of people living in the desert. They cannot work. They cannot work in the city where the jobs are here because the cities are, are Sunni Muslim and they're not able to work here. There are no jobs for them here. So if they're in the city at all, they're begging in the middle of the street. You can drive, be driving down a highway at 55 miles an hour, and there will be a woman with a child in the middle of the street, not on a divider, right on the, 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 you know, the, the presumed middle of a street, whatever that looks like here, uh, trying to get somebody to stop and give her food. It's... You know, in America, you'd never see a woman put her child in the middle of traffic. But this happens here, and nothing's done because this, this is their only way of getting money. And so so we hire this young girl, and she's the sole breadwinner. So, yes, making macrame and having any kind of income is is actually rare here. And so that's part of the appeal for some of the girls in recovery is they're thinking, how, what am I going to do? I have nothing left. And, you know, the word on the street is that there are places like this that will help them um, so that they can feed their kids and maybe keep their children um, as well. But, yeah, it's a little bit here is a lot, you know. Lisa Jones joining us from northern Iraq doing uh, missions work over there. And um, one of the things you mentioned earlier, Lisa, was the fact that there's trauma therapy that you guys try to uh, help those that have gone through some horrible conditions and horrible things. And one of the trauma therapy styles or methods, I guess, that you guys use is, is art therapy. Can you tell us a little bit about the art therapy that you guys do over there? Yeah. You know, um, the goal is, you know, in, in trauma, often what happens is, you know, the left brain takes over and you try to think logically, how are you going to survive and how are you going to protect yourself and how are you going to recover? And so the left brain goes, it kicks into overdrive and the right part of your brain really just, you know, it's overwhelming if you have to feel emotion. 
you know so art what it does is it's really indirect in that you know you can give someone a blank sheet of paper and the tools in which to create whatever masterpiece they want to create in that session and and it can be overwhelming for them but once they decide to put something down on paper it's it begins to trigger both you know both sides of the brain I mean we just you know we typically shut down um, you know um, because of trauma and this kind of stirs it up so anything from watercoloring to acrylics we, we you know we bring a lot of different mediums whether it's charcoal sketching um, some of the crafts that we talked about, you know, even here in the safe house, right now there exists a huge mural across the center of the house that was um, put up there by myself and one of the girls. And, you know, she was, when she came, she was completely shut down. And we struggled, any, everyone struggled building any kind of rapport with her because it was just, you know, she was just really checked out and shut down. And so, I began this mural and she started coming out of the room every day and I just handed her a small paintbrush and actually the decision was made to use a small watercolor paintbrush, a very small brush on this massive you know, mural and to do nothing but texturing across the whole thing. So it became a very, you know, it was a long project but what happened was it gave her a platform to come out every morning and to be creative and to feel her feelings but she didn't have to talk to me about it she was you know it was really private for her but we experienced it together and that was actually the beginning of the rapport that we have built together and now she's like a daughter and she's you know very close with her this is the same woman that is undergoing chemotherapy right now and so you know the narrative tools um, th that you can you can utilize through art is what happens is it gives them a platform to choose what part of the story they want to tell and how they want to tell it. You know, it gives them, it's very empowering for them. And so, you know, it's a wide variety of results that we get. Some people go really deep in their art and others, you know, um, maybe something, you know, very simple like a memory from back way when they were a childhood, something more pleasant. But for them to be able to pull those memories out and get them down on paper and share their emotions that are connected to those memories, it's very therapeutic. You know, one of the things as you talk, I'm listening and, and kind of just trying to picture everything. Um, you've mentioned uh, this young gal and, uh, and her experience and some of the women you've worked through, but obviously being female over there in that environment, in an environment where women don't have any rights, don't have a voice, things like that, are you guys focused just mainly on working with the female or do you guys have uh, male uh, I guess men with you that can are doing some of the similar things with with guys from over there or you guys just might primarily working with the with females well there's you know this is actually a rather large facility so we have two sides two houses basically separately that are built into one and so the man that runs this um, he actually has been in the country for 10 years so as a program, they have the benefit of someone who really understands the culture. He's been here a very long time. He didn't just show up when the crisis happened. So I really appreciate the work that's here and that it's very informed in terms of working with this culture. This man has 10 years experience. And so one side of this, of this compound, I guess, for lack of a better word, it's actually it's actually designed for the boys only, and so there are um, about ten teenage boys that are involved here, and they they learn work ethic, and they are mentored really by this man that runs this side of the program. So so there's two there's two you know arms I guess one is to work with the the young women, and one is to work with the young men. So, and then as a whole, we also contribute to the community, which has, you know, tens of thousands of youth cities who are displaced. So we do a lot of food distribution, and we bring in other programs like, you know, again, stretching, 
dance classes, um, art classes, and um, just, you know, kind of create a space where all the kids can come together and just, you know, have a great day where it's more carefree than being at home where it feels maybe heavier and they live with maybe 30 to 40 people in a in an unfinished home. You know, most of these homes here are not finished. They don't have windows. They don't have insulation. They're just bricks. And so it's, it just can be heavy at times. And so even just being a place where the kids can come and have someone, you know, give the parents a break so the kids can come here and have a day of games and playing. And so, yeah, but it's, it's not just for the women. There's a whole um, half of the program is actually dedicated to developing some of the young men as well. Being able to play those games, that's got to be a huge escape for them because anything to just distract them from what they're going through, I would imagine, would be huge. Do you find the response or when you when you do um, art therapy, these games, the stretching, things like that, do you find the response equally successful, I guess, between the young men and the young women? Or do you find that the women uh, respond a little bit better and the men are still kind of harder to reach? Uh, is there any difference? Yeah, well, you know, the approach is very different. For the men, it's more getting them to work outside. It's getting them to go to school and do their studies. Um, it's, you know, again, it's... So the culture is very different. So we wouldn't expose the men to any of what we do on the girls' side. Um, it wouldn't be culturally appropriate. Um, so th for the men, they have to actually work with within the culture. So it's it's not therapeutic. It's more mentoring, kind of like I don't know, like a man camp. You know, it's kind of like this is how we be a man. But um, I guess this. Yeah, the English is worked on in both sides, but that's that's it. That's about the only commonality. So the men are more exposed to, again, there's work projects, you know, that we have here. It could be anything from farming and um, gardening, you know, trying to teach them how to grow their own food, um, how to build things, how to maintain a property because that's, you know, something more the men are going to do you know, mentoring them, showing them some woodworking, things like that. So um, it's not therapeutic as it is with the women. The women here were captured in, by ISIS and have to overcome being sold as sex slaves, um, some of them having been sold and, and, and you know, raped by over a hundred men. You know, they've been tortured and some of them have, you know, some wounds, physical wounds, because they were tortured um, and traumatized in that they were locked in rooms and dark rooms and kept for weeks, months at a time. They've seen other people that were taken captive with them. They've seen them killed in front of their eyes. And so there was a, a lot of fear tactics that ISIS used while these women were in captivity. So their level of trauma is actually much deeper than, than it is for the men. So um, it's rare that the boys that were taken by ISIS get, have gotten out. Honestly, a lot of them that were taken captive were either brainwashed and have remained with ISIS and or they were put on the front lines of battle and they were killed. So the men, um, they may not be overcoming the kind of trauma that the women have. As a, as a whole, a lot of the people here witnessed um, their, their loved ones when ISIS first attacked, they, a lot of them witnessed the slaughtering of their people. Um, in fact, it's, it's rare that someone doesn't have some video on their phone of family members that were beheaded or shot and killed. They videotaped the aftermath. And that's kind of, you know, part of the difficulty is when someone holds on to, you can mentally hold on to your trauma, but when you have physical evidence and it's, you know, on your, on your cell phone, you can imagine the power these images have over and over. These guys are reliving that. So the men have, have their experience with trauma, but when it comes to... Um, 
Yeah, when it comes to uh, introducing therapeutic environments for the men, it's it's even more complicated. Sure. Well, I can understand now a little bit more why it's important, like you mentioned earlier, to have the gentleman that works with you that's been in country 10 years understanding the culture. Because for me, sitting here just kind of listening and not really knowing the culture, um, I wouldn't be able to really help out much because I don't understand what, what they go through and what they're like. So I can see where that's a huge benefit and can really focus in on where the needs are and what those needs are and things like that. You mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, providing food. So, mm-hmm. so you're dealing with uh, the women that come in you're, uh, and all the things that they've been through, and you're mentoring the men and the young men, but you also have uh, an opportunity to provide food for the community. So does, is that outreach just for anybody in the Yazidi community, or is it more specific to the city, the, the town that you guys are around? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, look, and, you know, in any given day, someone, you know, one of the, a couple of days ago, a young girl knocked at our door, and um, last week we had a dance class for girls, for teenage girls, a small group of teenage girls, so you can often make more progress if you, if you have a small number, because otherwise, you know, as volunteers here, we're overwhelmed. So we had a small dance group. Well, this young woman, you know, then she felt, obviously she felt um, safe enough. So she shows up again a couple of days later and and she's, in her broken English, says that, you know, they're going to have a feast at their school. And she says, you know, can you make me a cake? And I, what we realized was, you know, um, they were going to have some, you know, celebration at their school. And they didn't have anything to bring because they had no money. And so, um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a great baker, and getting the supplies for a cake here, and and actually finding time in your schedule. But I did um, send a taxi driver to go get this young lady a cake, and um, it was huge for her. You know, you could see that it meant the world to her to have this cake. We've had, you know, a couple of days before that, a woman shows up, her son needs surgery, and she's asking, you know, can we help? So we get we get a lot of requests for a variety of things. You know, in the past, you know, I've helped raise money to help a young man who was beaten. His foot became deformed. We paid for all of the surgery for him so that he could walk again. He was only nine when this happened. It was done by ISIS. And so... And what they had done was they'd broken his, his, his foot um, around the ankle and, and the foot, and it t- just never, it was, he got no medical care, so it turned and twisted, and, he could, and it was you know, pointing downward, so he couldn't walk on it. So it had to be rebroken and repaired. So, you know, there's, it's hard because the need here is great, and you don't know which needs you can meet. Um, and like I said, you know, we have one girl we hire, and we feed that whole family because of her income. We pay her pretty good. And um, But the, the promise that we've made, we've asked from her parents. So the deal that we make is that we'll hire her, but she can only work in the afternoons because she's got to stay in school. So a lot of the young people will try to go out and find ways to make money, and then they won't go to school, and then they'll lose their education. And so, and there's no hope there. And, you know, and actually our, our U.S. military has made, you know, say what you want, but back in early 2000 after 9-11 when we were here pursuing Saddam Hussein and there was a, a huge, you know, presence of the military um, forces here, these people will say even to this day that for women, they go to school now because of the American soldiers. The schools were built and they were they were given a chance to get an education. So it was actually a massive change here in terms of the society. The girls were becoming were giving permission um, to have you know to go to school. I mean, it really changed things. So so th- it's that exists now. Is you know it's a big deal to keep the kids in school. And so um, you know there's a variety of ways that we help the village and. Prim- 
primarily our focus is the village. There's like 40,000 displaced people here, you know, so there's a huge need. Most of the people here were trapped on the mountain when ISIS when ISIS took over their villages and their city, Sinjar. They were trapped on a mountain and many of them experienced things like um, choosing to end the lives of their loved ones because they were stuck on this mountain with no food and no water. And the weakest, which were the infants and the, the elderly, in many situations they had to choose to end their lives because they were dying slowly. And so this particular village witnessed a lot of that, and that's done a lot of damage on their psyche, and they have a lot of heaviness and guilt, and not to mention that, you know, they live in, you know, broken down, unfinished homes with no heat. It's a rainy, it's winter here, so there's a lot of rain, you know. Um, this young girl I mentioned, they all have, they all, the whole family, including aunts, uncles, everybody sleeps in one room that doesn't leak together when it rains because the entire, you know, all the other rooms are flooded because there's, you know, unfinished structures. So it's a lot of poverty here. It's a deep need, but we do give tons of food away. Lisa Jones joining us from okay. northern Iraq. And uh, Lisa, one of the things that has been coming to mind as, as we've been talking and all the stuff that you've gone to is I would imagine that you would have to have a, a big reliance on God. I know your journey to Iraq was was pretty uh, challenging. The things that you're experiencing and seeing there are extremely challenging things that we can't even probably fathom. Um, can you just share with us about your faith and relying on God and, and how he's brought you uh, through all this? Yeah, you know, um I think, you know, for my, my personal story actually encompasses a, a, a really long journey of wandering in the darkness, you know. Um, and at the end of the day, so Jesus is everything to me. Um, he showed up in the midst of, of a really broken life and, and redeemed my life and used individuals like myself to do it you know people who they I don't know they majored in compassion you know they that was their focus of their life's work and so you know there's this the basic concept that's a biblical principle actually when you know when you're given much you know then much then you're you're to give much you know it's receive much give much it's kind of this equation that we have in the kingdom and as well as you know the exhortation to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven you know so I, I do live by faith I've I've lived by faith in full-time ministry for 18 you know going on 19 years now so in many ways it's it's you know normal for me to live by faith but it's funny how it never gets easy you know here we're believing right now for easily you know over ten thousand dollars that's needed to kind of catch up on these repairs that took all of our resources including money for food you know so in in this kind of work it's there's always within it a crisis, you know, whether it's for personal finances or for finances for the work. Um, especially when you don't have a large organization backing you, you know, um, and you have fundraisers and developers and all of that. It's very, I work very much with the small, I guess the small, you know, the little people, you know, I guess is the best way to say it. You know, we don't, we we really don't have a lot of resources to be quite honest it's you know situations like this where you get to share and, and let someone know what you're experiencing and what you're going through and then they hear and then they give and then they share and so it's very much you know a small operation and so these kinds of needs are when they're met it's miraculous and obviously it really energizes your faith 
So on one hand, you know, I have the privilege of really getting to see God provide in miraculous ways every day. Whether it's, you know, hope being inspired in, in the life of someone who's, who has suffered greatly, or whether it's, you know, enough money right now to pay our Iranian workers, you know? I, you know, I have enough this morning in my pocket to give them so they can keep working, you see? And so where, you know, where the next comes from, it's, you know, it's, it's always anybody's guess. So, but, but, you know, it, the emphasis is not to live for building myself riches here on earth. It's actually for building into the lives of people, which is, you know, as a Christian, it's faith in the eternal. It's faith in beyond this life. And so it drives me, um, obviously, and sustains me in situations like this. And um, and I think it's an example to others, you know, that they they can believe for something bigger. You know, there's a, a success story of one of the girls I worked with here in 2016 um, and 17. So for over a year, you know, I worked with this young woman. And now she's in Switzerland, in Geneva. She's been given asylum in Geneva. She actually started doing photojournalism here and was threatened because of her work. So she, she, she requested asylum in Switzerland, was granted that, and has now been accepted in the Changemakers International, which is a very exclusive leadership program that's global and what they what they do out of Geneva is they identify 50 young people that they believe will change the the direction of you know our world and create policy and be involved in at that level so here this young woman is doing something I'll never even get a chance to even you know could I couldn't even fathom doing this but she's taking on something great she's learned four languages so now she speaks five fluently and reads and she's she's actually attending university studying international law and policy she's 24 years old and she's a city woman and so you know just that's to me is that's actually even treasures here on earth you know, but eventually, like I said, what I'm looking for is I'm looking to pour into lives in a way that's more meaningful, that will affect their their life, but their their children's lives and the lives of their their children. And long after I'm gone, there will be people whose lives will be greatly impacted, you know, because of, you know, I think all of our sacrifices that we make, whether it's giving to people like myself who are on the ground doing the work, or being those individuals who raise their hand and say, I'll go to that location and also into that society and that and meet that need. Now, you, you mentioned um, need. Is Are there ways, because you mentioned there's resources, there's needs, financial needs, there's resources uh, that um, you've been trying to buy a cake or getting a cake could be difficult, you know, macrame materials, things like that. Are there ways that people can help out if they are so inclined to want to provide for What's the best way to go about doing that? Is there any way that they can? Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. Um, so if you want to read about the organization, you can go to <clears throat> the website, which is mediste.org, and or if you are really looking to give, and, and again, a lot of times, you know, people want to give and be able to get a tax-deductible receipt. And that can be done, but um, it's easier to just contact me through email, and, you know, I can make arrangements for that to happen as well. Um, there is. I mean, I would really like to... You know, with all these building emergencies, it's really pulled a lot of our, our, you know, our, our funding has gone to emergency building. Where right now in the safe house, there's we're on a second floor, and all of our rooms alongside one of our our building has doors that open out into a balcony. Unfortunately, the balcony isn't built, so we have a little bit of a liability, a safety issue 
and that if you walk out the doors of the bedrooms, you're going to drop down, you know, and hit the ground. And so the funding that we had for that, we had, you know, raised, we had to redirect to repairs because of um, damage to the structure through the winter storms. So, you know, the needs are big and, and it goes, it's even goes down to smaller needs like, yeah, cake or, you know, um, uh, new sewing machines right now is a need here because there's some sewing machines that that were given but they they actually aren't working and so they tear the fabric and 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 actually sewing and making their own clothes is actually very viable income for the women so we'd like to you know provide them with you know really a top-notch piece of equipment so they can work you know and have an income so you know, it just the need is is great as one would expect here. Uh, food, you know, sometimes we just live on rice and beans for weeks, you know, with not a lot of any of variety in that. So it's you know it's a day to day dynamic. So you my email, I, should I just give you my email? Yeah, if you, if you don't mind sharing it, that'd be great. So my email is lsjones1108 at gmail dot com. So lsjones1108 at gmail.com. We set it up so that there's there that they are able to get a tax deductible, a tax receipt for their donation. So that's, you know, for a lot of people, that's, you know, really they need to have that write off. So if that's something that that is necessary, you can email me and I can give you some information to give. As I as I think of where you're at, um, and what you're going through, um, I couldn't help but think of Jonah and your experience. Did you ever have a Jonah moment and think that you know what, God, that's awesome, but I'm going another, I'm going someplace else? You can't work in an environment like this without it changing who you are. And sometimes, you know, part of our those changes, I don't know, they're they're difficult. You know, this is a real decision to get really close to suffering and also really witness injustice on a level that I've never seen on a daily basis and it's I don't think I've ever said no I won't go but but I know it's gonna cost me and it costs me to be here you know when I go home to America and you know I'm in the States and you know, it's hard sometimes to even have compassion for people because, you know, our suffering back in in the States is not the kind of suffering that we see here. So, you know, it's important not to let it it damage me in that compassion is crucial for any individual, regardless of whether, you know, it's the worst case scenario or maybe you know they're suffering from a you know something that I would say it's you know less of less importance you know right yeah so it's um, you know I just haven't said no you know from the time I've heard of what was happening here to the time I was called to come um, I never had said I wouldn't come. I've lost friends here. I've lost a very dear friend who was killed in 2008 by a sniper. He was in the military and it was a young man that I'd known for many years and really admired and he was a really wonderful godly man and you know I think remembering when he was gonna come he said he was kind of afraid because he wasn't sure he was going to make it back on that last deployment. It was a stop-loss assignment. And he didn't make it back. You know, and and um, I remember that conversation with him, and sometimes it haunts me because when I jump on the plane to head back over here, it, there's always a lot of fear. You know, my mind is racing. And sometimes when I'm here, I'm up through the night thinking I hear somebody coming, and 
um, or maybe I see somebody coming through the mountains behind us. Um, you know, we have escape patterns and caves to hide in, and you know, I mean, these are this is stuff you don't think about at home, and um, but I just navigate past those and try not to entertain the negative thoughts because you know how it is most of the time the stuff we imagine will happen never happens anyway you know so um, I don't know I, I can't imagine I can't imagine letting my fears get in the way so I try not to let them Elisa we thank you so much I know we've been on for a while so we'll let you go I know you got your day yeah. ahead of you um, and so yes. we just appreciate it and thank you for sharing with us and uh, anything we can do just please reach out and, and let us know what we can do to help thank you son for having me on I sure appreciate it I'm so grateful to anyone who's listening and anyone who's you know just their hearts are reaching out and and it helps it makes a difference and I'm so grateful that you out of all the stories that you can do you chose to do this story today and so um, I'm so grateful for it I'm so grateful that I could share um, what's happening here and and bring others in you know I think that yeah we hurt in isolation but we heal in community and as much as I need community this is one way in which I receive it it's by the support of others so thank you so much you bet. Lisa Jones joining us from northern Iraq. Thanks again, Lisa. You're welcome. If you would like to reach out to Lisa, you can. Her email address is lsjones1108 at gmail.com. That's lsjones1108 at gmail.com. Again, special thanks to Lisa for joining us on the show from northern Iraq. And thanks to you for listening. And do tell a friend. Until next time, have a very pleasant good evening.